You're listening to the Wise Wife Podcast. So you want a better marriage? Well, then buckle up, buttercup. You're in the right place. Last week, we delved into our responsibility as Christians to overcome evil with good. We saw how David, in taking on the behemoth Goliath, ran quickly to battle. And we talked about why our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against our husband, but against entire principalities of darkness. And we're unable to run quickly to battle, as David did, if we are stuck in fear, anxiety, doubt, and our hurt feelings. We will not be able to wage war successfully if we embrace the world's weapons of choice. And especially not if we are expecting the world's weapons of choice to be the end-all, be-all solution to our marriage problems. As I mentioned last week, this season on the podcast, we're going to learn how to deploy our divine weapons. These are the spiritual weapons which Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, where he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So before we go deep on all the various spiritual weapons that demolish strongholds, I'm going to wager that most of you have not even considered some of these as weapons for your battle. We need to first talk about a foundational truth that has to be in place before you can be effective in any spiritual battle. It's something that I see plaguing the church today and the enemy is having a real field day using this faulty belief system against many of us wives. When you feel God's call to stand and fight for your marriage, whether it's because your husband has outright left you or you're dealing with an in-home prodigal who doesn't really want to work on his marriage or on himself, the enemy is going to try and take you down. If he can't pull you away from the call to stand up for your husband and your marriage, he is going to try a different approach. When Satan can't outright convince you to embrace sin, he will then try to get you to embrace faulty beliefs that keep you ineffective. To convince you of these faulty beliefs, he will often exploit your own good intentions. He can and will exploit your desire for holiness. So let's talk about that. It is a good intention to fight for your marriage, to be the one that is faithful in the face of unfaithfulness, to be the one who won't give up, to be the one who is on their face before the Lord and petitioning him for victory in your husband and in your marriage, all of that is good. Where it can start to go wrong is when we begin to believe that those things are what will bring our healing, that those things will motivate God to act on our behalf. You see, when Satan can't outright break your will to stand and fight for your marriage, he's going to try and come after your intentions and redirect them to yourself. So hear me on this. Praying daily, fasting to break strongholds, having a heart of gratitude, confronting your own part in the marital breakdown, examining your heart and doing the repentant work, showing love and grace to your undeserving husband, being obedient to the word. All of these are sanctifying things, but none of those things earn you restoration. Ephesians 2 clearly explains this for us. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires 
and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is a lot we could cover in this one passage, but today I'm going to focus on just a few key points. For starters, I want to point out where Paul is yet again reminding us that the first war is not against flesh and blood, but in our spirit and in not living by our flesh, that we were by nature deserving of wrath. But God, right, verse four to five reminds us that, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Titus 3.3 is one more reinforcement of this truth. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, God took the first step. He came for you in grace. He called you to him in grace. It is by his hand that you are listening to this podcast and hungering for a more godly marriage. It is by his grace that you are not the prodigal spouse. So listen, I'm going to be so real with you right now. When I finally submitted my life to Christ, after a few decades of living a lukewarm and ignorant Christian life, I had this horrible realization that I had spent two decades believing that God was somehow lucky to have me. Like as if I had made some awesome decision to follow him and wasn't it great that I was choosing him? What a lie. And how boastful and self-absorbed and completely missing the mark. You know, again, Ephesians 2 spells it out, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In the same way that I did not choose God and he first chose me, God in his sovereignty has chosen you. He's chosen you to stand and fight. He's chosen you to be the one who remains faithful. He's chosen you to stand in the gap. And more than that, he has equipped you. He quite literally built you for this. So who are you to boast? Oh, Natasha, I'm not boasting. I know that this is not about me and I know I need God to intervene. Okay, okay, I get that. I hear you. But remember the devil. If he can't break your will to fight, he will redirect your intentions to try and create faulty belief systems in your heart. And many wives who are fighting to save their marriage don't even realize they're falling prey to this deceitful and nasty trick of the enemy. The faulty belief that if you do all these things perfectly, God will answer your prayers. Not only have I encountered some degree of this in every heart of every woman I've ever worked with, but we can also see it being taught in nearly every Stand for Your Marriage or Be a Better Wife book. There are some that I won't name them because they're actually quite helpful and I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but many of the ones that I read, they offered truth, yes, but they also preached a legalistic view of marriage and the faulty promise that if you're a perfect wife, you'll have a perfect husband, guaranteed. It's just not true. 
Okay, one only needs to read Job to see that bad things happen to good people and you're not God. You know, you're not God. Who who do you think you are that you would even have that kind of power? That your actions are so powerful that they have the power to change a man's heart. Because it's not our prayers that change our husband. It is our gift that we get to be in the story, being used and being able to learn and grow from that process while God does the changing. So God is the only one who changes hearts. In the process of doing that, he calls us to be sanctified and to learn to be the wife that he's called us to be for our own sake. Not because he needs us to be that way in order to change our husband. He doesn't need you to accomplish his purpose, but he wants you to be a part of it. And he wants you to be free because his truth is what sets us free. His ways are higher than our ways. They work. And he wants you to experience that freedom. And oh yeah, he's going to restore your marriage. But not because of you and your good works. So this idea that we have to be perfect in order to deserve restoration or marriage breakthrough is a lie of the enemy. It's the same deception that manifests into a fear that if you don't do all these things perfectly, God will not answer your prayers. I see that a lot as well. Like you can somehow screw up God's plan. I definitely fell for that when I was in the fight for my marriage. And it was a huge relief when someone prophetically spoke that over me like, Natasha, you can't screw this up. Stop wearing this burden like you have to be perfect, like you have to do everything right. Like if you make one misstep, suddenly your restoration is pushed out further. You can't screw up God's plan. But we hear that in our head, you know, you better be perfect. You better not make a mistake. You better not say the wrong thing. You could mess it all up. Listen, that belief, that belief that you are somehow in that much control, it's boasting. That's indirectly being full of ourself. That's believing that our marriage is saved by works, not by grace. Satan knows that if we begin to believe that our works control God's favor, then we are one step away from believing that we deserve God's favor. Hear me, I'm going to say this again. If we begin to believe that our works control and motivate God's favor, then we are one step away from believing that we deserve God's favor. And when we think that our performance will be enough to earn God's action, that is legalism. When we make sacrifices purely out of moral obligation, that is legalism. When we think to ourselves, well, at least I'm not as backslidden as my husband, at least I'm not the one doing such simple things, well, that's pride and legalism. Jesus' parable in Luke 18.11 confirms this, right? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He could not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, This man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Sure, you may not be doing the sinful things that your husband is doing or has done, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And it is legalism to think that you're better or more deserving than another, even other sinners. So when we do all the things perfectly, and are left frustrated that nothing has changed and God has not delivered us or answered our prayers, it's because we have set expectations of God rooted in legalism, rooted in our performance, rooted in the fact that we feel we deserve it. 
When we perform for God and expect him to give us a round of applause, that is legalism. We feel that we earned it. That is a transactional relationship. Jesus did not die on the cross, taking the weight of all our sin for a transaction. He did not suffer, separating himself from the Father for the first time ever, wearing our damnation. He did not do these things for a transaction with you. He did it because he wants to know you. He truly, deeply wants you to know the Father as he knows the Father. In my early years where I was so deceived into thinking that I somehow deserved salvation, my obedience to God was out of moral obligation. I wanted to do what was right simply because I didn't want to do what was wrong. (laughs) It was all based on a transactional Jesus. And while I was able to stay pretty upright, eventually it all came crashing down. Eventually the transactional relationship wasn't enough. It couldn't sustain me through the hard times. It couldn't keep me from all the sin and temptation. Eventually, the desire for the sin and being selfish was greater than my desire to be good. Romans 2.4 says that it is God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. It is not my desire to be righteous or to be good or to be right, to be deserving, that keeps me humble and obedient to Christ. It's the understanding of his loving kindness. It is knowing his love that leads me to want a life of obedience. If you're caught up in a transactional relationship with the Lord, you need to ask him to reveal his love for you, that you would be overwhelmed by his love for you as his daughter, his child, his chosen. I will be honest with you, my default is not to feel loved by God just for who I am without some kind of displayed merit. Just the other day, my four-year-old daughter and I were chatting about our plans for the day and I, I edified her and just said, I'm so thankful to God that you and I get to spend every day together. I'm so grateful to have a daughter. I immediately followed it up with, and of course, I'm so thankful for your brothers. (laughs) I love my sons too. (laughs) Classic mom move. And then Abby, my daughter, responded with, oh, and daddy, say you're thankful for daddy. And I said, yes, I'm thankful to God for daddy. And then she says, and Isla, (laughs) our dog, say you're thankful for Isla. So I, I chuckled and was like, yes, thank you, God, for Isla. And then she quickly replied with, and you, mommy, thank God for you. I kind of paused and was a bit taken aback because... It was odd that she said that, but in the flow of the conversation, I replied and said, yes, thank you, God, for making me, (laughs) to which my spirit just did a little timeout moment. Do you know what those are when you hear or see something and the spirit living in you just says, hey, stop, timeout, take a moment to absorb this. It's important. I realized in that moment, by not just blowing by it and taking a pause, that I had never really thanked God for making me before. Like, I'm so quick to be grateful for everyone else and all that he's given me and even the experiences that I've had and even the suffering. But go back further, none of that would even have happened if he hadn't first thought to create and design me or you. We hear Psalm 139, 13, 14 all the time, but have we truly sat back and actually received this truth over our lives? For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this well. I don't think I actually ever sat back and received the truth that God created me out of love for me. 
to display his glory in and through me. The psalmist says, your works are wondrous and I know this well. In other words, he's saying, I know you only create things that are wonderful and yet you still chose to create me. Understanding that love God has for us and then taking one more step in understanding that Jesus left that kind of incredible love to take on our sin as a living sacrifice for our deserved damnation. That one-two love combo combined with the acknowledgement that we are completely and utterly undeserving of that love, that is what brings us to repentance. That is what leads us to obedience. It is the understanding of his love for me that spurs me on to respond in love. It's his love for me that makes me want to do what is right by him more than what feels good in the moment. See, that's what was missing for me in my early Christian walk. I didn't receive his love in its fullness and I was simply trying to do what was right because God made sense to me. Sense in my head that I needed God and that he exists, but pride in myself didn't allow for his love to really touch my heart. Paul instructs us that we aren't to do away with the law, but that we must have both law and grace. You know, in grace, we accept God's love for us, no matter who we've been or what we've done. But we can't accept that grace if we don't first understand the law of God, how wretched we are, that we actually do need grace. But from this place, this place of balanced law and grace, I'm not bargaining for a transaction. I'm not saying, Lord, I'll do A, B, and C, and then you'll do X, Y, Z, right? No, that's a transactional Jesus. And he doesn't exist. That is Satan's counterfeit image of Jesus. And some of you need to strike it down now. When we admit and confront our deplorable nature while fully accepting that we are loved by God, we are much closer to the promotion of understanding the authority we have as a chosen child of God. Instead of feeling like a servant in God's house, we realize we're part of the royal family. We have authority as a member of the family. And that authority is a gift of Jesus. It's not based on our works. Yes, we must do things, works, to protect that gift, to nurture that gift, to grow that gift. But the gift in itself is not something we earn. Once you understand this and your heart posture is in the correct place, you can then add the works to your life and your relationship with God so that you can have an even more rich relationship with him. Once we understand that it's by grace alone that we have anything at all, we can then come to God with our good works and they're coming from the right place. Our devotions are no longer obligations, but a rich time of saturating ourselves in the living word. Our volunteering is no longer to prove to others or God that we are good Christians, but is now a genuine act of service. Our submission to our husband is no longer an attempt at manipulating him or sadly manipulating God but instead is now a gracious act of love with no expectations. I told you that on this season of the podcast, we're going to cover the divine weapons that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians and how we can apply them to our specific situations. We're going to talk about the obvious ones, right? Prayer, the word of God, but we'll also go into fasting, demonic deliverance, praying the scriptures specifically over ourselves and others, forgiveness and how it sets up or demolishes strongholds, sexual intimacy and how it destroys strongholds between man and wife and more. But before we get into those hot topics, it's really important that we examine our hearts and ask the Lord to reveal any legalism, any transactional Jesus that may exist in our hearts or minds. Some of you may be like me, where you grew up with a very strong grace message and you really didn't see God as an authority figure at all. Others have grown up with nothing but fire and brimstone God, the ultimate authority figure who is always watching. Both ways are wrong. 
Both upbringings are weak representations of who God and Jesus truly are. For me, I grew up in a charismatic environment. So by the time I was a teenager, I was very comfortable with the Holy Ghost. I had zero problems talking to atheists about the Holy Spirit. As if he was as real as the chairs we sat on, I didn't doubt his existence at all because I had witnessed and experienced the demonstrative works of the Holy Spirit my entire life. And I'm super thankful for that. But then when my marriage fell apart and I went through my wife boot camp experience, which I talk about in my book, I realized that I really didn't know Jesus and I was actually quite uncomfortable with him. I would even avoid bringing his name into conversations, sadly. It's heartbreaking to think of that now. It was in that painful season, though, of my marriage and life that the pain and suffering of Jesus finally made some sense to me. I began to see how much he wanted to truly know me, not just die for my sins. But God, Yahweh, the Father, who's that? That one was still a little unknown to me. I got the beginning of that answer a year or two after I really met Jesus and my marriage was physically restored. We had moved to Switzerland while attending a friend's wedding at a centuries-old Catholic church high atop a Swiss mountain. We decided to walk the grounds before the ceremony and found our way to the church's prayer grotto deep underground carved into the mountain itself. I mean, it's like epic, right? And as I crossed the threshold into this extremely old prayer room, I immediately, and I mean immediately, felt the overwhelming urge to just fall on my face. The place was teeming with tourists. People are acting as if they might as well be walking into the post office. And I'm literally fighting to physically keep my body upright. At this time, Tim is not serving the Lord, okay, or even believing in the Lord. So I don't really have an outlet to share what was happening. I just simply beelined it to the back of the room and quickly sat down in a pew to gather myself. And I will never forget asking the Lord, what is happening right now? What am I feeling? What is this? And as if it was spoken out loud, I immediately heard, I am God, the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega. And I realized in that moment that I had been very comfortable with the Holy Spirit. I had learned to know Jesus and be more comfortable with who he is. But this was the first time I was encountering the reverence and the awe of God the Father. So I grew up with the Holy Spirit because it was my experience. It was all I knew. And I wasn't searching the scriptures to find Jesus. I was just living by my environment and experiences and I was worse for wear because of it. And that's what most of us do when we grow up in Christian homes. And we we just kind of go along with it. But then I grew up quickly in a time of suffering. And I sought Jesus. And I found Jesus on every page of his word. Just right there waiting all along to meet me and teach me more about himself. But it wasn't until that prayer grotto that I encountered the ancient of days. And it was a holy, reverent fear. An awe-inspiring fear. Not the fear that many of you grew up with if you have a fire and brimstone type upbringing. Not the fear of condemnation or the fear of punishment, but the true fear of the Lord, it's reverence. It's not condemnation. It's reverence. It's a deep awe for someone who truly deserves nothing less. But whether you had my experience or something different, we all must sort out who God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit truly are. And maybe you're still even in that process and me just talking about them is making you realize that. But a healthy understanding of the Trinity, of who God is, is an important part of your faith and what you bring to your marriage. It was in that prayer grotto that I met God. Not the, I met God in the way we casually mention it in our modern day church, but the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the ancient of days. And I felt his holiness, an immense holiness that I would never live up to. And yet I also felt his love for me. 
I wasn't afraid of his holiness. I just simply knew not to mess with it. It's <laughs> like the best way I can say. So when you go to fight for your marriage, we must come at that fight with the correct heart posture. Do not let your heart be convinced that God is this ultimate authority waiting to pounce on your mistakes or that he is some pushover that's going to keep allowing waywardness. He is immensely holy and also immensely loving and both can be true. And do not let the sneaky lies of legalism, some maybe even deeply rooted in your upbringing, do not let those faulty beliefs turn Jesus into some kind of transaction. Do not let your marriage restoration be a transaction. Just waiting for him to deliver your what you purchased, what you bought with all your works. No, let it be for the glory of God, no matter how long, no matter what it looks like, no matter how it takes shape, let it be for his glory because he chose you. He made you for this battle. And with that correct heart posture, that heart posture of humility and long suffering, let us run quickly to battle as David did when fighting Goliath. Let us not waste time thinking about the circumstances or the what if scenarios or the fears and instead align ourselves with God's purposes. And just like David confidently said to Goliath, we can also say to Satan and every spirit of darkness that comes to steal our family, you come against me with a sword, a spear and javelin the world's weapons, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him and today the Lord will hand you over to me. Thanks for tuning in to the Wise Wife podcast. Go to wisewifeblueprint.com and download your free battle strategy. These are the five things you must do if you want to see breakthrough in your marriage. And remember, it takes two to save a marriage. You and Jesus.